Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andy. Good morning. Good morning. My name is John Young, and I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Our senior pastor, Carter Crenshaw, is out west taking some time to plan and prepare and pray. I want to encourage you to be praying for him while he's away. And as we've already said this morning, for the last several weeks, we've been on a series, uh, we've been in a series on work. And I think what we figured out is by now you're sufficiently worn out. So this morning we're going to preach a sermon on rest. And our primary text is the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, that you've just heard. So before we go any further, let's ask God to speak to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this moment we pray that you would quiet and settle our hearts, remove the noise and the distraction that maybe we brought in this room. And we pray the prayer of the psalmist, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We ask this in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, Jesus Christ, our King, Shepherd, and Friend. Amen. Uh, in the week before his death, Kenichi Uchino, the Japanese man, in the week before his death, his wife noticed some changes in his behavior. He smiled a lot less. He had a lot less interest in playing with their two young children. In fact, she said the only time he really seemed uh, energized is when it was time for him to go to sleep. So she knew something was off, she knew something was different, but she had no way of predicting what would happen in just a few days' time. Because in just a few days, Kenichi Uchino collapsed on the floor of the factory where he worked, never to rise again, dying from heart failure at the age of 30. What caused this early tragic death? A secret drug addiction? Maybe some unknown genetic defect? Neither. It was work. Kenichi Uchino had literally worked himself to death. In the last month of his life, he worked 106 overtime hours, most of which were unpaid. He was ruled by his work. He needed, he desperately needed rescue and rest, but no one intervened. But Japan's not the only nation that's building a terrible reputation for working her own citizens to death. In fact, Japan's not even number one on the list of developed nations with the most overworked citizens. Any guesses as to who is? 
You're living in it. Congratulations. You are citizens of the most overworked, developed nation in the world. In fact, according to the International Labor Organization, Americans work 137 hours more per year than Japanese workers. It's a lot. We work 260 hours more per year than British workers. And just for fun, we work 499 hours more per year than French workers, which is why they're so happy and their love lives thrive. Okay. <laughs> By the way, if you see somebody you know, in the zone, it means they're planning their escape. Nudge them and tell them to come back to America and come back to the sermon. Okay, we, as Americans, we're ruled by our work and we are in desperate need of rescue and rest. And the good news this morning is the words that we just heard, the passage that was just read, Exodus 28 through 11, the fourth commandment tell us, if Jesus is our ruler and our rescuer, then we can and actually we must share in his rest. Are you weary this morning? There's rest here for you. The passage shows us that if we're to share in the Sabbath rest of our Savior, we've got to grab hold of three things. First, the priority of Sabbath rest. Second, the practice of Sabbath rest. And then lastly, we'll close by considering together the promise of Sabbath rest. First, the priority of Sabbath rest. Look with me at verse 8. And then we'll look down at verse 11. Um, Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You remember things that are important. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then verse 11, God reminds them, I blessed the seventh day and I made it holy. God places, actually it's pretty unnerving when you consider the unusual priority that God places on Sabbath rest. For example, if Israel violated the Sabbath rest, what was the penalty? Execution. And not just execution, excommunication. As they were being put to death, it was communicated to them, you have been utterly cut off from your people. And not just that, exile. Israel was exiled in Babylon for 70 years. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 36, It was because for 70 years they neglected to give the land its Sabbath rest. We should be uncomfortable by the high priority that God places on Sabbath rest. How can he do that? How is that okay? Well, to understand it, we have to understand two things. The nature of the law and the nature of the Sabbath itself. The nature of the law. Let me tell you real quick, this is where most people get it wrong. This is where I got it wrong. And this is where if you get it wrong, you lose a Christianity of the Bible. You can still keep your Christianity of the culture and of your coffee cup slogans, but if you get it wrong here, you lose a Christianity of the Bible. We have to understand the nature of the law. Consider the context. Our our passage is part of what? The, The Ten Commandments, that's right. And let me ask you another question. Where were the Ten Commandments given? Anybody remember? At Mount Sinai. Okay, one more question. Did they go to Sinai before or after they were in Egypt? After. And here's what that means. It's not as if God showed up in Israel, uh, showed up to Israel in Egypt and said, uh, I can see you're oppressed. 
I can see now for four centuries you've been slaves, forced labor in Egypt. I can see you're needy and you're weak. And here's my solution that I'm going to come propose. Here are ten rules. If you will keep these rules and keep them perfectly, I will deliver you. That's not how it happened. The only thing they had was their need. In fact, that's all you need is your need. And God showed up, and he delivered them with a strong hand, the Bible says. And he brought them out of Egypt, and he brought them through the Red Sea. And then, after salvation, after rescue, after deliverance, after grace, comes law. This means that the commandments of God are not rules of restriction. They're actually laws of liberty. This is how free people, really free people live. They were instructions for Israel about how they were to live no longer as the slaves of Egypt, but as the sons and daughters of the living God. The law, you see, is gift. The nature of the law is that it is gift. But it's more than that. It's also a glass. Let me let someone much smarter than myself explain what that means. Bible scholar Alec Mortier points out that each commandment of God represents some aspect of the likeness of God. And therefore, obedience to God's law gives expression to what we really are. Beings in God's likeness. And this results in our true freedom. There's two aspects to what Mautier is saying. He's saying when we think about the law, the law as gift, the law is also a two-way glass. It is a window into the likeness of God. The commandments reveal the character of God. When we look at the commandments, it's the likeness of God expressed in precepts. But it's not just a window. It's a window that becomes a mirror. Because when you look into the wall, first you see First, you see how far short you fall. But the Bible doesn't stop us there. Because also what you see as you continue to look into the mirror of the law is what you can and what you will, by God's grace, become. The law is gift. The law is a two-way, multifunctional glass showing you your God showing you yourself and your need and showing you what you can become by his grace. You know what this means? This means the law and the verses we've read this morning are a guide to help you become more fully human. I want you to think for a second about the dehumanizing culture we live in. We live in a time where we're actually losing the ability to relate face to face, Andy because we spend all of our time relating screen to screen. And it's not out there, because so many weeks, so many Sundays, guys like me stand in places like this and say, hey, my job and my desire for you is I wanna help you get plugged in. I hope none of you have a plug, because you're not machines. We're human beings, but the law reminds us not yet as human as we were meant to be. If we're going to understand 
unnerving priority that God places on Sabbath rest, we have to understand the nature of the law, gift and glass. But we also have to understand the nature of the Sabbath itself. So you can flip with me or scroll. No judgment. I know I've just knocked technology. So you can scroll freely here. Exodus 31 is where we're going. Exodus 31. Let's sit there for a second. And this is when uh, Moses is once again reminding the people about the Sabbath of God. They're preparing to build the tabernacle, and Moses takes the opportunity. Hey, remember, this is what God says about the Sabbath. And here's what he says in verse 13. God said, above all priority, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? Why is it so important? Keep reading. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. What do you need to know about the nature of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was not just about physical rest. That was a byproduct. The Sabbath functioned as a sign. What does that mean? In the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, every covenant came with a sign, a visible representation and reminder to the parties in the covenant of the promise that had been made. So when God comes to Abraham and gives him the covenant of, hey, I'm gonna bless the world through your descendants, he gives them the covenant sign of circumcision. On the very organ of procreation, a reminder, I'm gonna bless the world through your descendants. And here, at the foot of Sinai, God gives Israel the Sabbath as a covenant sign. A Hebrew scholar says this, The Sabbath functions as such a sign. It provides a regular weekly reminder for everyone as people keep the Sabbath, stopping their work and devoting themselves to worship. They demonstrate openly that they are keeping the covenant. And I would add, you demonstrate, you reenact, you relive, you refresh the reality of the covenant that this God has made with you. It was a sign to them to help them to remember they were no longer slaves but sons and daughters. Not a rest to earn favor, but a rest as a consequence of love and favor that had been set upon them. On a weekly basis, they were to bump up against the reality that was once so vivid when they were on the other side of a split Red Sea. And on a weekly basis, the Sabbath was supposed to put the salt air back in their nostrils and remind them. A few months ago, back in the spring, I was playing with my oldest daughter, Lillian. She's two and a half. And I was pulling her in this little red plastic wagon we have. And one of the gifts of having children is all of a sudden this thing reawakens in you that's called your imagination. You haven't used it in all these years, and your kids give you the gift of using it. So we're in the backyard pulling the wagon along, and all of a sudden, by Lillian's idea, the whole backyard becomes an imaginary zoo. And so I'm pulling her around the perimeter of the yard and we're stopping here. I'm saying, okay, Lillian, you you see that right there? That's where the lions are. Now, what sound do lions make? And Lillian would say, rah. I'd pull her a little further. Okay, Lillian, you see right there? Now, that right there, that's where the monkeys are. You see the monkeys in the tree there? Now, what sound do monkeys make? Oh, very good. Okay, and we'd pull a little bit further. Okay, Lillian, you see that? That's where the giraffes are. And that's my little joke because giraffes don't make sound. And then we pull a little bit further, and I'm like, you see this right here? And I'm, by this time, I'm at the end of the yard, and I'm running out of ideas. I, don't, I can't remember how many animals are in the zoo. So I get to this place in the yard, and I say, okay, Lillian, you see over there? That's where the cows are. It's not a very good zoo. 
And I say, Lillian, what, what sound do cows make? And what, here's what we don't know. About five yards over, one of our neighbors is getting ready to cut a tree. And about the time I say, Lillian, what sound do cows make? His hand is reaching for the pole. And so right as my little sweet two-and-a-half-year-old daughter purses her lips to say moo, what we hear is And I'm startled, and she's startled. I look at her, and she already has big eyes, but at this point, about 75% of her face is eyeballs. And her lips start quivering, and the tears start coming, and she screams, and I'm just holding her. What happened? A greater reality broke in. We had a nice little formulated bubble that we were living in and something greater, something heavier, something more real than our reality broke in. That's what the Sabbath is. Something more beautiful, something more glorious than your nine to five, the quota you have to meet, the bills you have to pay, the groceries you have to buy, the meetings you have to lead, breaks in and shakes you to the core. Sabbath is a sign. Exodus 31 again reminds us that it's a sign that you may know that the Lord sanctifies you. God gave Sabbath to Israel as a sign that they would know that they were made holy, set apart, sanctified by his work and not their own. And because of that, they could rest. So let me ask you this morning, do you have the order wrong? Have you put Sinai before Exodus? Have you put law before rescue? You can know true rest this morning. Is the reason why you're so weary, maybe not so much the schedule, but the fact that you've been looking for rest outside of God. Maybe you're so weary from the ceaseless striving to justify yourself. No rest this morning. The priority of Sabbath rest. That even if we buy in, even if we believe that Jesus, as our ruler and rescuer, shares with us his Sabbath rest and it's important, even if we believe in or buy in and believe that it's important, we need to know how. How do we share in this rest? What does that actually look like? And that's where the passage goes. So let's consider the practice of Sabbath rest. It's right there in the passage, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, not your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy the practice of Sabbath rest. Think for a second that the first recipients of this gracious command had been slaves for 400 years. That's all they had known. Ceaseless, cruel, forced labor. And then they're rescued by this God who shows up and then he gives them some commands and fourth in the list of commands is mandatory rest. Aimed at their deepest need but completely against their instincts. And they would have needed God to teach them how to rest. And so do we. So do we. 
when we look at the passage, when we look at these verses, what we see is they reveal a rhythm of work and rest, six and one, that is rooted in creation. This means that this rhythm of work and intentional, purposeful, sacred rest was woven into the fabric of the universe before sin ever entered the scene. This was the rhythm of Eden. This is the pattern of paradise. And you and me, human beings, were never meant to go and go and go and go and run on coffee until you crash. We were never meant to live that way. But what happened? And why, why do we live the way we do? Because what happened back then with the first human beings at the dawn of time is still happening today. We refuse our status as creatures. We don't rest and we point to our circumstances. But these verses say the problem is deeper. It's not out there. It's right in here. We refuse our status as creatures. David Brooks is an op-ed writer for the New York Times, best-selling author. Anything he writes, I recommend you read. He's kind of a public intellectual. And a few years ago, he was giving a speech at the Chicago Humanities Festival. And at, at this speech, the first thing he does is he argues that we've become a culture of meritocracy, which means a merit-based culture, an externally focused, hyper-competitive work-for-what-you-want culture, a culture of meritocracy. And then he asked the question, now what are the consequences? What are the consequences of becoming a hyper-competitive, frenzied, always busy, externally focused, merit-based culture? I'm just going to share with you two. The first thing that David Brooks says is, we're more proud we have way more self-confidence today than we've ever had. In 1950, there was a Gallup poll given to high school seniors, and the question was asked, do you think that you are a very important person? 12% said yes. In 2005, a Gallup poll was given to high school seniors asking, do you think that you are a very important person? 80% said yes. And this is before everybody had Instagram. I don't even think the Kardashians were on TV in 2005. Americans rank, uh, Cindy mentioned math. I love this one. Americans rank 25th in the world in math. But we rank number one in the world in thinking we're good at math. <laughs> Time Magazine put out a poll asking Americans, are you in the top 1% of earning income? As it turns out, 19% of Americans are in the top 1%. We think very highly of ourselves. We're more proud. Secondly, he says, we're much more individualistic. You know, Google keeps track of the words we search and probably everything else in our lives. But at least the words we search. And what Google can tell us is right now, in our cultural moment, there is a dramatic rise in individual words. Words like I, me, myself, do it myself, and personalized are dominating the search engine. Communal words like share, us, community 
are becoming an extinct species. They're plummeting. We are proud and we're individualistic. We have a high view of ourselves and everybody in here on some level assumes the right to define what's right for you. We live in a culture in which we boast about our busy schedules and in which exhaustion is a badge of success. This passage shows us to refuse rest is not only foolish and impractical, it's proud. It's to commit the ancient sin of refusing our identity as creatures, refusing to live within our limits, going the way of Adam and Eve and those who built the Tower of Babel and every human being born since the rebellion that occurred in Eden. The pattern of Sabbath rest first off reveals that we don't experience this rhythm of work and sacred intentional rest that was rooted in creation because we won't embrace the reality that we are limited, finite creatures. You know, Psalm 121 says there's only one who never sleeps or slumbers. And you're not him. And neither am I. Secondly, the passage moves from the pattern to give us some very basic, practical principles. So let's look. First, first we see these, these principles, by the way, come in three directions. First, they come in a negative direction. The first thing we see is the Sabbath rest of God is about not doing things, right? The word Sabbath itself comes from a root that means to cease or to stop. And then in verse 10, it's explicit. On this day, you shall not do any work. So the first principle about Sabbath rest is it's about not doing work. Which means, if at all possible, don't do any work related to your job. Don't even check emails. Another principle, students, if at all possible, don't study, don't do homework on the Sabbath. Try to avoid other work, housework and yard work. Stop doing, here's the principle, stop doing some things in order to create space for other things. So there's a negative aspect, but there's also a positive. Sabbath means stop, but rest is a purposeful, proactive thing. We're to pursue rest. It's not just about not doing things, it's about doing the right things. So this could mean taking a walk. If you sit at a desk 50 hours a week, maybe taking a walk is the most important thing you do. It could mean taking a nap if you're pretty active. It could mean alone time if you're like me and you're an introvert. Or it could mean some quality time with friends if you're an extrovert. Whatever it is, you practically, proactively, purposefully intentionally pursue things that will positively contribute rest. And thirdly, negative, positive, there's a Godward direction to the principles. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. We're pretty quick to say the Sabbath is for man. But the Bible says with as much emphasis or more, the Sabbath is to God. In Ezekiel 20, God says, these are my Sabbaths. 
Alec Martyr again says, there was to be on the Sabbath a cessation of normal activity in order to set aside the Sabbath for something special. The Sabbath was to be a day of holiness, that is, a different day, a day set apart from all other days, a day belonging in some special way to the Lord and therefore to be lived uniquely for Him. Sunday, Alec Martyr says, should not be a second Saturday every week but a day that is positively different because of its Godward direction. It's being lived specifically for God. The Sabbath rest of God is not about utilitarian recharge. Let me crash today so I can work six more. It's not about a utopian reprieve where you just watch Netflix and chill all day long. It's about something totally different. It's about something more sacred. Something greater is going on in the Sabbath than physical rest. Practically, what does that mean? I'll give you one. Prioritize corporate worship. Throughout history, the church has understood as Israel worshiped on the seventh day, now we worship on the first day, celebrating the day that the Lord Jesus rose because this is the day devoted to God. This is the day when the greater reality breaks into your norm and wakes you up. This will require planning and preparation in Exodus 16, God told Israel, here's the Sabbath, by the way, you're gonna have to gather your wood and prepare your food the day before. It requires some forethought. And it's also gonna require something much harder. It's gonna require some cutting. And the cutting will be against the grain. This means you, you may need to seriously think about whether or not you sign your children up for the travel league. It's gonna keep you out of town three weekends out of the month. What is that doing for you as a family and what is that communicating to them? The practice of Sabbath rest. A pattern which we'll come into if we remember that we're creatures. And just some basic principles. Stopping work, pursuing rest, all toward a Godward direction, living the day unto the Lord. Lastly, let me close by reminding you of the promise of Sabbath rest. Verse 11 of our passage is just an illusion, a quotation from Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we have the creation account. And you may remember how it goes. God said, let there be light. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And then God said, let there be an expanse. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let there be this. And there was evening and there was morning another day. And God said, let there be this. There was evening and there was morning another day. And what's really startling is he never says that about the seventh day. All the way through, evening, morning, fifth day. Evening, morning, sixth day. On the seventh day, God rested. You know what that means? It means the Sabbath rest of God that began on the seventh day of creation continues on into eternity. And the unbelievable thing that the Bible has been telling us this morning is that we can enter into it. But how? How do weary, workaholic, egocentric, self-centered, leisure-loving sinners like us enter into the Sabbath rest of God. First, we look back. We look back. 
because that's what, that's what Israel did. In Deuteronomy 5, when Moses, before they went into the promised land, Moses reminded them of the Sabbath again. And he said, this time, don't just look back to creation. Look back to the Exodus. Look back to when God delivered you. And just like they look back to being delivered from bondage in Egypt, we look back to our deliverance. You know, Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, Jesus made a really bold claim followed by a crazy invitation. He's praying to God and he says, he says this, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And it, it's kind of, you know, stops you, but you gotta keep reading. The very next words out of his mouth. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No one knows God except to who I choose to reveal. Come to me. Take my yoke, and I will give you rest. How do we enter into the Sabbath rest of God? Well, how could Jesus even say that? How can he pronounce such an invitation? You keep reading. Because in the next chapter in Matthew 12, Jesus says something even crazier. The Pharisees are bugging him about healing a man on the Sabbath. And you know what he says? He turns to them and he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. How can we enter into the Sabbath rest of God? By coming under the Lordship, taking on the yoke of the one who has fulfilled the Sabbath. You know, in John 17, four, Jesus says, I have glorified you, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work that you sent me to do. In John 19, 30, from the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished. What was God doing on the seventh day of creation when he rested on the first Sabbath? He was celebrating his finished work. What do we do? What does it look like for us to share in the Sabbath rest of God? We look back and we celebrate the finished work of Christ on the cross. Through the labor of the cross, Jesus has won for you rest. We look back not to deliverance from Egypt, we look back to a deliverance by the strong hand of God in the form of a gentle and lowly Savior. But we also look forward. We also look forward. We're really not that different from the first hearers of these words. They had been delivered, but they were not yet home. Like them, we've experienced an exodus. If you're trusting in Christ, you've been delivered. You're no longer a slave to sin but you're not yet home. And so Hebrews 4 says, a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite book in the series is the last one, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this story, my favorite character is Reepicheep, the noble mouse from Narnia. And Reepicheep and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace and others, Prince Caspian, they get on this giant ship, the Dawn Treader, and they're sailing to the end of the world. 
And at one point, Reepicheep reveals to the others that when he was just a, a little baby mouse, someone taught him a song. And the song went like this, where the sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet. Doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek. There is the utter east. And, and Reepicheep tells them, I don't really know what it means. But he says this, the spell of it has been on my heart all my life. And it's not until the end of the story that Reepicheep and everybody else understands its meaning because they come to the world. And all of a sudden, Reepicheep realizes this has been the siren song of Aslan's country. the foreign country that was achingly familiar, the true home that he had never yet been to. Brothers and sisters, sharing in the Sabbath rest of God is not about keeping rules. It's not about recharging our batteries. It's about hearing the siren song of the world to come. It's about preparing ourselves for life in the new heavens and the new earth when the king returns and makes all things new. To live under the lordship of Christ as the one who rules the world. To live under the love of Christ as the one who has come to rescue his people to live in the hope of Christ as the one who has promised to return is to share in the rest of Christ. Let's pray.